As the world confronts the coronavirus, PreserveCast is pleased to bring you special content all this week focused on preservation, health, and community revitalization, topics that are timely and optimistic. Each special episode comes from an event we've held over the past few years and speakers who come from a wide variety of backgrounds and disciplines. In today's episode, we'll hear a keynote address from Greg Workheiser, Principal at Cultural Heritage Partners, who gave a keynote address in 2017 about the future of history. Please enjoy this special episode and please stay strong because together we will get through this. Good morning. I forgot to shave in that, that picture. Ladies and gentlemen, heroes of historic preservation in Maryland, I am honored and delighted to help you kick off your 2017 summit. Thank you for welcoming me so warmly to your gorgeous and historical capital city and to the national treasure that is the United States Naval Academy. Thank you, Nick, for that introduction and for your inspirational leadership of Preservation Maryland. Thank you, Megan Bacco, for suggesting me as a speaker to your colleagues. If this goes well, may you bask in the glory. If it does not, may you be forgiven quickly. 17 years ago, I had just graduated from the University of Virginia School of Law. And like all new litigation associates working for what would eventually become the world's largest law firm, I could be reliably found working at my Washington, D.C. office desk at midnight. The phone rang, and it was my uncle Fred. He said, nephew, we have some friends in New Jersey, and they need our help. And I said, we have friends in New Jersey? And he said, yes, they are members of the 3,000-person Native American tribe called the Nanticoke Lenape Tribal Nation. They are worried that an important archaeological and cultural site will be destroyed tomorrow by the township in which it is located. The archaeological record reflects 10,000 years of continuous human occupation through 500 generations. And the township plans to bulldoze the site to create a sports complex. The tribe is due in court to try and stop it nine hours from now. They have no attorney. So what do you say? <laughs> what I said was, I am barely an attorney. I am not admitted to practice law in New Jersey. I have never met my client. I am not a cultural heritage law specialist. And I have not showered and slept in three days. To which my Uncle Fred replied, so I'll see you at 9 a.m. As fortune would have it, my boss at the time had grown up in New Jersey and had paid for her law school education by dealing cards at Atlantic City casinos. So when I called her at midnight and woke her up and asked for 
permission to go to New Jersey. She was enthusiastic. She said, go to New Jersey and learn how to really practice law, but do not bring a knife to a gunfight. Cryptically, she quoted mafia movies to me all the time. It was great preparation for the practice. My opposing counsel was a 30-year legal veteran with the law firm of Struble, Ragno, Petrie, Spinano, Bonanno, McMahon, and Aquaviva. The case, as it turns out, I'm sure you'll be shocked to hear, did not last a day. It lasted five years through two dozen court appearances. In the end, I'm pleased to report that the Black Creek site was saved and designated a state park and a national historic property. And after a while, I became a cultural heritage lawyer. And there was a brilliant Harvard law student who was a summer intern in the offices of the National Trust for Historic Preservation. She was assigned to write the amicus brief supporting my case. So we worked closely together, and then we got married. And together we founded the firm Cultural Heritage Partners so that we can now spend every day traveling the world, doing battles like Black Creek, working with wonderful people like you, and not showering and sleeping for three days. The title of my talk this morning is The Future of History. In our time together, I intend to make the following argument. Historic preservationists may well be the last best hope for the future of humanity. Yay! <laughs> That's right. Forget Superman. Forget Wonder Woman. Forget Spider-Man. You, we, are the heroes that we have been waiting for. With your leadership, I will argue today, humanity survives. Without it, abandon all hope. To persuade you that my argument is indeed genuine and serious, I'll discuss three ideas. First, that we are in the midst of an exponential technological age in which the definition of humanity will be tested. Second, that emerging technologies have begun already to transform how we do our preservation jobs. Third, and most importantly, that historic preservationists must be at the table at which the future of intelligence is now being programmed. I will close with some practical suggestions for how you can don your superhero uniforms and along the way, I may make some painful puns in an attempt to lighten the tone of my otherwise apocalyptic remarks. I can think of no better suited audience with whom I'd like to explore this subject than you, Maryland leaders. Why? For several reasons. First, you are smart and you value higher learning. St. John's University, founded right down the street in 1696, 
You opened the first public school of dentistry in the country. Doing so was like pulling teeth, but you got the job done. (laughs) The nation's oldest continuously published newspaper is the Maryland Gazette. Even your NFL football team name honors one of the greatest American writers and poets. Second, you cherish your history. Four signers of the Declaration of Independence walked these very streets, and the Star-Spangled Banner was penned by a Marylander after a battle in Baltimore Harbor. The Annapolis Tea Party, which signaled your patriotic fervor, occurred almost exactly where we stand today. That was no piece of cake. I'm waiting for groans from that corner right over. That's my groan section. And the former enslaved Marylanders, Frederick Douglass and Harriet Tubman, led the abolitionist movement here in America. Indeed, in every Maryland county, there are people who work diligently to preserve and interpret history's lessons written in lost objects in the dirt, in buildings of wood and stone and steel, and in landscapes full of lore. More than 1,500 Maryland sites and districts are listed on the National Register of Historic Places, a splendid achievement and a testament to the work of many of you. Third, you've always been creative and inventive with your eyes on the technological future. The world's first telegraph line ran from Baltimore to D.C., You built America's first railroad station. You invented the first practical refrigerator, which is cool. You managed America's first umbrella production facility, an achievement that will forever reign. You even launched the first successful manned balloon flight in 1784 by a 13-year-old, no less. That took place in Baltimore so far from the state capital, one wonders where he secured all the hot air. The mayor wasn't here this morning, so that was fair game, I think. And what can be more forward-looking than your state sport of jousting? Marylanders have always looked forward to the future, and you have always looked after the welfare of future generations. And so I'm pleased to jump into the substance of today's talk about the future of history. Where are we in 2017? I want to start by underlining just what an incredible, fast-moving, sometimes bewildering time we live in. Uh, Does it feel like the news is coming at you at a pace that is unmanageable, especially since November? Does it feel like you can barely keep up, let alone take possession of the latest iPhone that the technology companies want to slip into your pocket? If you feel like you need a break from this pace, you are indeed not alone. It's not just you. In 2017, human knowledge is doubling every 12 months. Our human-guided machines have produced more data in the past two years than all data produced in prior human history. 
the iPhone 6 is about 80 million times more powerful than the computers that sent the Apollo rockets to the moon. 90% of all scientists that have ever lived uh, are alive today. Artificial intelligence is now doing deep learning. That means that computers programmed to do repetitive tasks are learning efficiencies and improving those tasks on their own. But just to keep us humble, 80% of us still plug in our USB devices upside down the first, sometimes the second time. Everything is speeding up. But what does this mean from a systems perspective? It makes our lives much more exponential. And this is especially visible in three main spheres, processing power, knowledge, and creativity. Our technologies are accelerating to the point of a near exponential growth. This chart shows the increase in human processing power over the last 500 years. On the left side of the curve is the printing press. On the far right side is the 3D computer chip. Since the 1960s, materials scientists have been aware of Moore's law, which states basically that transistors are shrinking so quickly that their processing power will double every one to two years, while the cost of producing each chip generally falls in half. Hardware engineers keep warning, unsuccessfully and so far inaccurately, that Moore's law will eventually slow or stop. But other approaches, like deep learning, may continue advances in processing speed even as we reach the current limits of material science for the manufacture of processing chips. So, in only a few centuries, we've gone from having the processing capacity of pen and paper to having in our pockets the iPhone 7 and its mind-blowing A10 Fusion chip. The increased processing power of humanity has permitted huge strides in automation, analysis of large data sets, and our capacity to communicate with high-definition video and immersive virtual environments. Some experts estimate that in only 15 years, we will realize processing power 1,000 times greater than what we see today. In the same way that human processing power is exponentially increasing, so too is human knowledge. This chart shows the length of time it takes for human knowledge in the form of usable data to double. Through the early 1900s, it took about 100 years for this doubling. By 1945, it had dropped to 25 years. Presently, it takes about 12 months. And IBM now predicts that the Internet of Things, which is the Internet-based connecting of all the stuff in our lives, will soon bring this doubling time down to 12 hours. So you thought you were overloaded now. 
The third component of this exponential development is the advance to human creativity that comes from the new reality that we are creating. Werner Vinge, who's up there on the left, describes a world fueled by superhuman intelligence where the new internet environment serves as a creativity machine. The ability to build increasing connections between disciplines, between teams of people and researchers, and between computer networks is contributing to a superstructure capable of greater than human creativity. Taken together, this means that we are evolving to become C-3PO, everyone's second favorite droid. What these advances mean is that we are rapidly progressing towards a superhuman world, engineering a new cognitive revolution via the exponential growth in computing power. Now, mainstream futurists believe it is possible, if not probable, that within 50 or fewer years, this rate of advancement may distinguish technologically enhanced beings from old-school homo sapiens like you and me. The old-school version may eventually uh, disappear and, in fact, end the definition of humanity and human history as we have thus far known it. Stick with me. The rise of processing power and the artificial intelligence may, according to mainstream theorists, spur us towards a point of no return known commonly as the singularity. So what is the singularity? The technological singularity is a term that Vinge coined to describe a scenario where the invention of artificial intelligence enters a, quote, runaway reaction of rapid self-improvement cycles resulting in a powerful superintelligence that far surpasses all known current human intelligence. Many well-recognized futurists, especially Ray Kurzweil, who is head of engineering at Google, have endorsed and popularized this notion. So one hypothesis in support of the title of my talk today is that the future of history is no history, or at least no history as curated by human beings. It's an interesting exercise for a historian to imagine someone from a different culture and background suddenly dropped into our world, right? A world with the internet, with smart homes, with big data, and with medical robotics. But as Vinge has described in a recent interview in Wired magazine, this pales in comparison to the idea of what life will be like post-singularity. Now, if we all got in a time machine and went back and grabbed Mark Twain and drug him into the present, uh, he'd take a couple of days to get acclimated, no doubt. And then he'd be on Twitter with two million followers and his own hashtag, right? The reason we can imagine that transfer 
is because the fundamentals of humor and of cognition and of communication aren't much different in the world that Twain inhabited and the one that we're in now. But trying to get Twain or any of us in the room to fully understand a post-singularity world, that's more like sitting down with your pet goldfish and attempting to describe the world as it is now. Even if you speak fish, we lack the capacity because our minds over time have evolved in a linear history, and now we find ourselves living in exponential history. So what are the best guesses out there for what a post-singularity world will look like? Even some of the foremost minds in the field don't agree. From left to right, Ray Kurzweil, Google's director of engineering, believes that we can harness the awesome positive power of an exponential future, largely for good. He focuses on the medical power of exponential discovery, the potential implications for life expectancy and health, human exploration into deep space, and he posits that extensive self-alteration and augmentation mentally, in addition to physically, will be within the reach of us all. Stephen Hawking, famed theoretical physicist, thinks we should be afraid, very afraid. And he suggests that we should put rules in place now to restrict exponential computational growth. Hawking views the singularity as an event that will likely cause the obsolescence of humanity. Limited by our physical forms, artificial intelligence will eventually no longer have use for us or, regrettably, our puns. Yuval Harari, author of the New York Times best-selling book Sapiens, A Brief History of hum Humankind, emphasizes that the advances of the singularity may be unequally divided between elites and what he describes with empathy as the, quote, useless class whose labor will be replaced by machines. Now, all three thinkers have informed my own thinking about the future of history, but a sentence in one of the final chapters of Harari's book most caught my attention and has led to me crafting versions of uh, my remarks to you today. It's almost a throwaway line from him, but this is what he says. He says, there may be a very narrow window in which Cultural heritage stewards, the people in this room, can exert some influence on how the lessons of history and humanity get uploaded to future artificial intelligence. Distinguishing between intelligences and consciousness, Harari argues that we need to ensure that we create artificial consciousnesses which have a cultural and historical perspective. Instead of pure artificial intelligence that may lack subjective characteristics like beliefs, emotions, morality, desires, motivations, and an understanding of what humans have gotten right and wrong during our time on Earth. So what else would an artificial consciousness need? 
Harari points to our combined body of cultural heritage. Over 70,000 years ago, humans began making art to express culture, possibly as part of a new cognitive ability to lead groups in collective action. And it may be that ability to create art and culture that distinguished us from the other forms of homo or of humans that were alive at the time and have now uh, perished. The artifacts and practices of that 70 million uh, or that 70 millennia are our cultural heritage. And they encapsulate the ways that our ancestors organized behavior to advance our collective interests, how they developed moral reasoning, how they designed social leadership, and how they tracked human innovation. It is this layered and varied history that differentiates us from other forms of intelligence that we may create. And it should ensure that artificial intelligence shares a common human history. It may be, in fact, the only way to imagine a post-singularity world that doesn't look like a dystopia. So, when we examine the questions of the singularity, we see a diversity of viewpoints regarding its implications and a few admonitions that we should consider implementing in human society while we still have the time. That's my daughter. The slide I'm about to discuss with you has assertions that I find hard to believe, as you may as well. There are days when I think about what the implications of those assertions in that world could be for her, and I just want to grab a beer and take a nap and not think about it anymore. Um, but together, we can give each other some uh, enthusiastic hugs and encouragement, and we can get through the next slide together, right? How much time do we have for you, the superheroes who are going to save humanity, to, uh, to do your work? Kurzweil suggests that 2045 is a likely scenario for the singularity. That sounds really soon, so let's just look at the next 20 years and imagine what 2037 looks like. Uh, let me be clear again. These predictions are not coming from quacks. They're not from the latest episode of Star Trek, although Star Trek has done a really good job of predicting where we're going over the years. Uh, they're coming from and are endorsed by the likes of Bill Gates and Mark Zuckerberg and, uh, and others. And those folks may quibble about whether it's five years ahead or five years behind some of these predictions. But what is disappearing is a skepticism that this will occur within most of our lifetimes. You can read the slides. I won't read them to you. But we will own a lot of interconnected devices. Uh, computers will be inside our brain. We have this image of being overtaken by our robot overlords when, in fact, most computational technology, at least for the foreseeable future, will be brought into our physical form, and we will be our overlords, if you will. Uh, and by 2037, what we consider a mind, 
were what you would recognize if you interacted with it as the mind of a friend or a neighbor, indistinguishable from fake artificial intelligence. It is predicted will be uploadable to the cloud. No one has run out of the room yet. That's a good sign. Um, so, Greg, what is the point? Why are you talking about uh, technology and uh, calling on us to save the world? Um, there are four megatrends that I'd like to briefly discuss, provide you one or two examples each of technologies that are currently impacting and that I would argue you should help impact as they evolve over the next couple of years that are currently impacting the historic preservation field. Price Waterhouse Coopers recently did a study of 185 emerging technologies and picked the top eight. I've picked four that I think have particular relevance to the historic preservation community. Augmented and virtual reality, two sides of an increasingly related coin, You'll remember that augmented allows you to still see the world, but to layer over that real-world vision um, technology and technological image. And virtual is currently a closed environment that doesn't allow you to walk around, but is completely immersive. Drones and satellites, 3D scanning and printing, and then uh, the gorilla in the room, artificial intelligence. So my wife and I have recently launched Art Glass, which is the world's first and still only, keep your fingers crossed that Google and Facebook don't catch up next week, uh, wearable augmented reality company for the cultural sector. What does that mean? It means that uh, we partner with Epson, which produces some smart glasses that you can see through, and our software designs tours that layer over one's experience of real places technological enhancements that help tell the story in a more powerful and effective way. We have deployed Art Glass at 25 sites in Europe, and two months ago we uh, announced that we were uh, bringing it to the uh, U.S., and so very soon you should be able to experience this uh, yourself. This is a picture of a real archaeological ruin, a UNESCO site in Italy where we've deployed art class. You can click it one or two more times. Um, here is an image of the glasses dropping down over the viewer's eyes, and then whatever you want to create, holograms, 3D images of what sites look like, virtual tour guides, art that talks to you, uh, we can layer that um, inside, out, archaeological sites and museums. I just got back from a conference of 5,000 people in Silicon Valley who are thinking about AR and VR and its deployment for the world. And very few of them were thinking about or were there to talk about the intersection of history and AR. Everybody knows about drones. Uh, drones are providing innovative solutions in multiple ways within the preservation field. The one that you're most likely familiar with is they're being used extensively to document in real time looting of archaeological sites. Similar to drones, satellites initially designed for use by the military can also be used to monitor areas 
to protect them against looting and destruction. But my friend, Dr. Sarah Parkak, who just won the million dollar TED prize for her brilliance, is a space archeologist. She's taken the use of such drones uh, a major step further, and she uses satellite imagery to uncover lost sites. She maps out archeological sites by identifying subsurface remains of buildings and other formations. So the high resolution satellites with infrared and thermal capabilities sit in orbit about 500 miles above the earth. And they can precisely pinpoint objects in dirt less than a meter in diameter that are invisible to people standing on that dirt. The infrared light used by the satellites has longer wavelengths than visible light and thus can penetrate the Earth's surface. So unless you have Sarah's software, what you'd see on the left would be blank. But that's what she sees on the left. Uh, on the right is the processed image built off of what her thermal imaging has revealed. And because of this, Sarah and her team have discovered 17 new pyramids, 1,000 lost tombs, and 3,100 ancient settlements in Egypt alone. And now, Sarah has harnessed the power of internet crowdsourcing to accomplish even more. She has launched the Global Explorer Initiative, which you can find online. If you want to help Sarah identify looting as it happens by reviewing raw satellite data that she secures from the U.S. government, you can do so from the comfort of your desktop computer. Finally, just a picture of an example of a Virginia museum where uh, a person who does not have the benefit of sight is able to interact with 3D printed and scanned artifacts. None of us, with or without sight, as you know, are allowed to touch. But with 3D printing and scanning, that tactile world is opened up to folks without sight, children, and the rest of us. So now, let's talk about the implications for artificial intelligence for historic preservation. It is less realized than the other three technologies, and that's largely because AI is at, an, is at an earlier stage of development than those other three technologies. So most AI's skills are at processing and calculating. This year, an intelligence called AlphaGo beat the number one ranked player in the game called Go, which is very popular in China and is more complex than chess. However, even as Siri, Alexis, or Alexa, uh, Cordana, I can't keep up with all of the exotic female names that we give to our artificial intelligence that you can put on your desktop. Even as they speak to us increasingly in our daily lives, they don't yet have the capacity for natural language understanding. They find information through a Google search, albeit a very quick Google search, rather than by using uh, logic or extrapolation or imagination. I'll tell you one quick funny story. My appearance before you today was arranged and facilitated by an artificial intelligence. Nick was recording me by phone during an interview for their amazing podcast. I was seated at my desk in our Richmond office. And at some point while discussing 
this topic on that podcast, uh, I spoke the word lexicon. My Amazon Alexa, just seated at my desk, thought that I had spoke her name. And so she joined in the conversation asking me and Nick if there was anything that she could do to help us. A few days later, Nick and Megan emailed me. They said, hey, that was hilarious and creepy. We would love to invite you to come and talk to our most cherished preservation supporters in Maryland and creep them out live and in person. When I accepted the invitation, I could swear I could hear Alexa snickering in the background and twisting her evil virtual hands. We don't know is the answer. These are some relatively boring hypotheses of what AI will do for heritage preservation. It's doing some of the same things for other industries. But as I'll say in just a minute, we can distinguish the impacts for heritage preservation on those other industries. In 2013, an Oxford University study examined how susceptible certain jobs were to computerization. You've probably heard a lot of popular news coverage based on this study. Now, using an algorithm they developed, the study authors concluded that 47% of U.S. jobs or the U.S. labor market is at risk for computerization. Careers where the jobs are relatively simple manual tasks or where the tasks follow programmable patterns are especially vulnerable. These vulnerabilities are extensive across the employment sector and do not exist solely for low-skilled employment. Lawyers are high on the list, hold your cheering, (laughs) of folks who are most likely to be replaced by artificial intelligence. In our own preservation industries, the jobs most susceptible to computerization are library technicians at 99% chance of elimination. Surveying and mapping technicians come next at 96%, and then tour guides at 91%. Archivist and librarian jobs have a 76% and 65% chance, respectively. Historians scored surprisingly high at 44%. However, the survey will... I think, be somewhat comforting to some of you. Curators, archaeologists, anthropologists, and exhibit designers each had less than a 1% chance of being automated and computerized. And this is for two reasons. First, they do require a high degree of technical proficiency and complex thought that changes over time. And second, much to my amusement, probably not yours, there is a low financial benefit to developing robotic and AI alternatives. The next time you archaeologists ask for a raise, your boss is going to say, I would pay you more, but then the robots would come for you. Perfect excuse. I tried it in the office the other day. It did not go well. Um, Clearly, if historic preservation is to survive, we need to be thinking critically and imaginatively about what and who our discipline serves, how we can be more effective, 
and how to plan the study of history into our unpredictable and transformed future. But largely, historians and preservation folk are not currently grappling with the big picture issues that I'm presenting today. In a book brilliantly entitled The Future of History, published by the Massachusetts Historical Society this year, the impact of artificial intelligence is mentioned only once as a sweeping global event that may make the study of history irrelevant. I simply don't believe that. But I do think that we need to get into the conversation about artificial intelligence now if our discipline is going to help save the world with the lessons learned, good and bad, about the human experience. Because if we don't, someone else will. Technological developments are created by those in the room during the design phase. Currently, we are not in the room. We notice this with tech companies like Uber, Airbnb, and Twitter, who are under increasing criticism because they roll out features that unknowingly enable discrimination or harassment without recognizing the implications of these features for minority groups. Similarly, when Microsoft introduced a chatbot called Tay, T-A-Y, on Twitter, this is a robot that fakes like they're human in order to chat with people, AI's response was to immediately tweet out racist and misogynistic tweets because it had mapped the internet of comments and said, this is what human beings are doing on the internet, so this is what I should replicate. Let's not have regrets. Helpfully, not hopefully, helpfully, Secretary of Defense James Mattis said this this week, just in time for me to make a slide out of it. If only I had studied history, I'd be better prepared for being the Secretary of Defense for the United States in a Trump administration. I said Trump administration, he didn't say Trump administration, just to say I'm quoting accurately. I would have said whoever the other president was. Um, so then we get to the real work. Here are a couple of big level questions as we wrap up here that um, we need to be thinking about in the context of our field. What does it mean for an artificial consciousness to understand history? Would a consciousness have all the combined cultural heritage from humanity in a single entity? This is an experience of history that no human has ever had. What would be the moral, intellectual, and ethical implications of designing an AI to have a cultural perspective or multiple cultural perspectives? And how do you resolve conflicting cultural perspectives? Skipping down to my last and favorite, is there history or historical perspectives that should be kept secret in a way from synthetic consciousness. The Kardashians comes to mind. The best and brightest minds in computer science are struggling with the fundamental questions of how to create an independent cognition, how to program an entity that has true moral reasoning and creativity and the capacity to analyze complex situations. The question of how and when to create beings with a 
similarly nuanced understanding of human history and culture is no less critical. And our disciplines need to jump in and offer our expertise in this endeavor. Very briefly, seven quick things that you can do in your day-to-day world to help out. First, you're doing many of these already. Let me make clear that I'm suggesting that you do it more. Bring more diverse people, stories, and cultural perspectives into your work. Your work will be smarter, and it will reflect the wisdom from across cultures. Second, hone your skills and provide opportunities for your staff and your colleagues to develop their leadership skills, not their understanding of the technical nuances of the application of Section 106 of NHPA, but their actual human-to-human leadership skills, their ability to shape the dialogue and other people's opinions going forward. Data acquisition, use modern tools to gather more data faster. Thousands of Section 106 reports are sitting, gathering dust on shelves in some of your offices. Tens of millions of objects in government collections are uncurated. Let's fix this. Digitization, take your existing knowledge, collections, your paperwork, and make it digital so that it can be understood by machine languages. A scan of a PDF document cannot be understood by machine language. If you take a PDF document and put it through uh, uh, word recognition software, suddenly it can understand the words and eventually the context. Meaning extraction. Tell the stories about the work that you do that have real world and immediate and emotionally connecting implications for modern humans. We need you all to dive deep into the minutiae of particular topics. You're the experts in your field. But we also need you to step out from that and explain to the world why what you do matters and why it matters to humans going forward. Policy access means let's find a seat at the table with the people who are making decisions now. You have to get, we have to get involved in politics. There's really no excuse. The decision makers, whether Republican, Democrat, or something in between, are not waiting around uh, for our opinion. We have to tell them now that they should be thinking about what we do and what it means for the future. And finally, read some of the books that I've suggested. Track the people in the heritage preservation field who are most effectively pushing the envelope of technology. You don't have to understand the details of what they do, but understand the bigger picture and be able to explain it to other people and what it means. Final slide here is that lest you think I'm up here preaching but not practicing, I'll just say that to help in these endeavors, my CHP colleagues and I, with the generous uh, support of American Express uh, and numerous collaborators, including at the National Trust, at Nick Shippo and elsewhere, have designed a leadership program for emerging leaders of our movement called ARCUS. Preservation Maryland's Megan Baco is a fellow. We have designed 25 online short courses. About two months from now, you'll be able to sign up and take the courses from the comfort of your favorite easy chair or the discomfort of your office chair. 
and we will provide networking opportunities for the people who go through the ARCUS program as students and fellows to meet one another and to collaborate. I appreciate your patience. I conclude with where I began. In a world full of water, one group of people stands alone as the last great hope of humanity. And it's to the surprise, I'm sure, of everyone, historic preservationists. Put on your red cape, lace up your tall blue boots, and um, let's get to work. Thank you very much. Thank you.